Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Hamlet podcast. These bonus episodes are, I must confess, rather arbitrary little tributes to various artists and thinkers who have contributed substantially to the history of Hamlet. I started with my own hero, and then paid tribute to the man who helped to found the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then got a two-for-one by profiling the first actor who played the role on screen, who conveniently also happened to be a woman, and was herself one of Hamlet's most famous interpreters. Thinking about this play leads one almost by default to think about actors and acting. And so for this episode, I thought it'd be a good idea to give a nod to the man who originated the role and was the first actor ever to play Hamlet. This man, of course, was Richard Burbage. Burbage was born in London in 1567, the son of James Burbage, the man who built the first commercially successful theatre in London. Conveniently enough, since it was the first, he was able to call it the theatre. There had been another earlier effort in Whitechapel called the Red Lion, but it saw nothing like the success of Burbage's theatre. The theatre was home for quite a while to the Lord Chamberlain's men, the company that Shakespeare himself joined, although a dispute with the landlord led to the extraordinary tale of the company taking the entire building apart and bringing it across the Thames to Bankside, where the wood was used to build the Globe Theatre. It's also worth noting, perhaps, that James Burbage, as well as being an impresario and the first theatre manager in London, was also by trade a joiner. But what of Richard Burbage? He was an actor in the company, and we can assume that he originated a very great number of roles in Shakespeare's plays. We have it on pretty good authority that he played Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, Richard III, and, of course, Hamlet, and probably a great many others besides. There's a lovely essay about him in the book Great Shakespearean Actors from Burbage to Branagh by Stanley Wells. My favourite of the very interesting points that Professor Wells makes is that, while we can infer that Burbage was an exceptional actor and a fine swordsman, in all these parts there's never any call on him to sing. Shakespeare clearly knew his man and only asked of him what he knew he could deliver. Of course, Shakespeare wasn't the only playwright whose works Burbage performed. There's evidence to suggest that he also appeared in works by Ben Jonson, and presumably any number of the other plays that the Lord Chamberlain's men are listed as having performed. But it's fairly safe to say that he was the first ever Shakespearean star actor. Burbage tends to appear as a character in depictions of the life of Shakespeare and he has been played by a variety of actors that includes Martin Clunes in Shakespeare in Love, Steve Spears in the BBC comedy Upstart Crow, Nicholas Rowe in A Waste of Shame, and many others. Burbage does not appear in the bizarre film Anonymous that gives life to the conjecture that Shakespeare might not have written the plays at all, and so such entertainments need not concern us here. Burbage seems to have emerged within the Lord Chamberlain's men as a performer of extraordinary ability. The cynic in me is keen to point out that, following the construction of the Globe, Burbage and his brother Cuthbert had a 50% share, in contrast to the 10% each owned by Shakespeare and four other of their colleagues. Hereafter, the leading male roles in Shakespeare's plays seem to get a bit bigger, both in terms of line count and emotional scale. Shakespeare's longest plays all appeared after the new theatre's construction on Bankside, and roles like Henry V, Othello, Lear, Macbeth, Antony, Coriolanus, and of course Hamlet, were all presumably played by the leading man with the lion's share. 
But of course, there'd be no point in Shakespeare creating these roles if Burbage wasn't talented enough to bring them to life. But the commerce underlying this is significant either way. When we get as far as Act Two of Hamlet in these podcasts and the arrival of the travelling players, there'll be a good deal to say about the rivalry between Burbage and his main competitor, Ned Allen, who was the star performer and de facto leader of the Lord Admiral's men at the Fortune Theatre. The two men were the most respected actors in London at the time, and the competition between them is woven into the very fabric of the text of Hamlet. But for that, you'll have to wait until we reach Act 2, Scene 2. Of course, Alan was not Burbage's only rival. An apocryphal story hints at an amorous rivalry between Burbage and Shakespeare himself. One night, the story goes, Burbage had arranged a tryst with a certain popular lady, and, perhaps an allowable vanity, he insisted that she refer to him as Richard III, one of the roles in which he had had great success. Apparently Shakespeare was also a suitor to this woman, and somehow managed to sneak in and dally with her before his colleague's appointment. When Burbage sent word up that he had arrived, our pithy poet sent the reply that William the Conqueror came before Richard III. Burbage's desire to be addressed by the name of a character he played might today be dismissed as the self-indulgence of a committed method actor. In fairness to him, we should bear in mind that he was exploring new forms of truth in acting hundreds of years before so-called psychological realism reached the then non-existent United States. One Richard Flecknoe saw Burbage in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and he wrote, He was a delightful Proteus, so wholly transforming himself into his part and putting off himself with his clothes, as he never, not so much as in the tiring house, assumed himself again until the play was done. If this was the level of commitment to character that he was exploring, it's no wonder that these ideas about the difference between playing and being might find their way into the plays. Only because Burbage was so fascinating, and we can assume brilliant an actor, could Shakespeare then take so many risks in Hamlet, talking about and even staging the difference between appearance and reality. Without Burbage to play the part, we'd never have Shakespeare's version of the Hamlet story. When Burbage died in 1619, his passing was such a big deal that it threatened to overshadow the death of Queen Anne, who had passed away a few days before he did. A great number of obituaries and elegies appeared to mourn his loss. One of the most impressive of these is sadly anonymous, so I've nobody to credit even for its splendid title, a funeral elegy on the death of the famous actor Richard Burbage, who died on Saturday in Lent, the 13th of March, 1619. I do have a small excerpt from it, which gives a sense of the breadth of Burbage's range as an actor. He wowed as young men and old men, and this poet seems to have been especially moved by the actor's emotional range. We can infer from this the way he remembers Burbage's Lear and Othello, not for their towering rages, but their ability to elicit our sympathy. Here's the excerpt. He's gone, and with him what a world are dead, which he reviewed to be revived so. No more young Hamlet, old Hieronimo, kind Lear, the grieved moor, and more beside, that lived in him have now forever died. The character Hieronimo is the protagonist of Thomas Kidd's incredible play The Spanish Tragedy, a huge part for a very talented actor. The play was very influential, and indeed there's a case to be made for it having been a significant influence on Shakespeare's own revenge masterpiece. 
without the Spanish tragedy, and certainly without Richard Burbage, there wouldn't be a Hamlet as we know it. When Burbage died, Thomas Middleton, another contemporary playwright, lamented that his loss caused an eclipse of playing. A more succinct and now anonymous wit had just two words to mark the great actor's demise, and it's with them that I'll leave you. Exit Burbage. <laughs>